Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you are enjoying shows like this and the other work that I do and you want to give back, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Links are in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material and guides and adventures and small city source books and all kinds of things. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. We have, as we do every week, a lot of interesting things to talk about. Earlier this week, Ginny D, a, uh, she is a YouTube personality that talks a lot about D&D stuff. She's a cosplayer, really cool member of the community. And she did an excellent video called The Underused Tip That Will Make Players Obsessed With Your Game, which she admits is a little clickbaity, but I'm going to spoil it and tell you what that tip is. And that tip is a, a really, it's really, really a good one. This is a, this is a the powerful pro tip. And the powerful pro tip is to lean in on characters' powerful abilities rather than trying to counteract them. So when you find players that, are, that have characters who have really powerful abilities, instead of asking yourself, like, what you need to defend against those abilities, how do you make sure your boss monsters can, can work with those abilities? And it could be anything from, like, being polymorphed into a mammoth or using banish against powerful foes or having fireball, right? Using fireball to blow up lots of people. Turn undead, right? The use of turn undead to get rid of lots of things. Instead of saying like, okay, I need more powerful undead or I'm going to put a monument in place that gives undead advantage against saving throws for turn undead. Instead, lean into it, right? Throw lots of monsters that can be turned. Throw, you, you put piles of low challenge rating undead monsters and set up situations where the cleric is like in the center of like hordes of undead coming in and let them hit it. Same with fireballs. Instead of saying, like, if a, if a character is like, I want to throw a fireball, how many can I hit? Instead of saying, like, well, they're all spread out. Like, they know about fireballs, so they're careful about spreading out. So you might hit three or four. Instead, like, have hordes of guys that are running in in a fireball formation. Like, oh, there's this huge horde of hobgoblin raiders that are charging at you all in a 20-foot radius circle as they run towards you, Right. And then you get to blow them up and you watch hobgoblins explode through the air like fireworks, right? Think about how to lean in on those abilities and showcase them instead of setting them aside. This, this gets into an idea that I've been kicking around and I've talked on this show before called the, the, the lightning rod. Sunjammer says, predicts Mike Shea will say lightning rod soon. It's not really a big prediction because it's in the show notes right here. It says it right in the second line of the show notes. But yeah, and, and I have done this. This was something that occurred to me. Like I, it was something that I, I really articulated that I really sort of, you know, I've probably been doing little bits of this. I think other people have been doing little bits of this for, for a while. And instead, I really thought about it in my Frostmaiden game. And I thought about the fact that I had players who were like using Banish or they were using Polymorph or they were using other spells that really had big effects and it really starts to happen about level seven right it's about seventh level it can happen a little bit like stunning strike with a monk happens at sixth and fireball happens at fifth so it can happen at different levels but it, it really starts to certainly picks up in tier two right tier one you generally don't have to worry about this but tier two you, you do it really works especially like in a boss fight if you say like i know they want to banish stuff right i know and they would love to banish the boss but we don't really want them to banish the boss right generally i mean there's probably like a scene you could set up where banishing the boss is really important but generally speaking especially with legendary resistance and stuff like that banishing the boss isn't a big deal but why not give them something else to banish right and an example a, a simple example of this is in my frost maiden game i had oral the frost maiden the the, the 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 goddess of winter when she attacked challenge rating whatever when she attacked her rock was with her. She has a, a rock, this huge predatory bird, right? Massive predatory. It's like 180 hit points and it's 50 points of damage when it hits. It really, it hits really hard and has a ton of hit points. And if you're going to fight that and knock it down with attacks, you're going to be there all day. But its charisma is terrible and throwing a banish on it and that sucker goes away. Right. And now you've got a character who is really effective at removing a tremendous threat from the battlefield they feel really good about it because they got to pull it off it was one bad save and that thing is gone and and in your battle you're almost designing it that you kind of have to do that it's a little bit of rock paper scissors right it's a little bit like you want to make sure if they've got a rock you want to make sure to put scissors in there right what are the, what are the things that are going to be particularly effective and again i think you can break this down into two pieces and that's giant brutes non-legendary big brutes and hordes of small 
creatures. I think if you do, I think if we're going to go really lazy with it, if you, if you, if you narrowed it down to those two sets, I think you're going to cover a lot of ground. And it's because you have spells like hypnotic pattern and turn undead and fireball and other big kind of controllery spells that hit a lot of things. And then you have other spells that take out big things, right? And sometimes you'll do it with both in, in one battle. You might have a horde of undead attack at first and then a bunch of like hill giant zombies that attack, right? Or two hill giant zombies and like one you banish and the other one you have to fight. And then you have a boss and the boss is like handled in a more typical way. Rock, paper, scissors with ROC. Excellent. So I, I really like this idea and I think it's pretty powerful. I wrote an article about it on, I don't know, earlier this week that I'll probably publish sometime. And I think I'm going to do a short video about it as well, because I think it's a really, really powerful ability. And, and the main thing is like you're showcasing the characters. This is really like being a fan of the characters, right? Being a fan of the characters means setting up situations that make them look awesome. And that's different than setting up situations that limit their abilities that you think are kind of broken and i'm definitely like a dm who gets like i get grumpy when i see characters that come in with abilities that feel like they are overpowered for their level i you know notorious for the for the circle of the moon druid right with the poly, all the all the, the changing of circle of the moon well think how cool circle of the moon could be if there's like a whole group of monsters that just attack the circle of the moon druid and he and the moon druid gets to rip through those things in bear form right that's really cool and fun and that means like the challenge leading of the battle might go up because you threw a lot more you know but there's there's cool things there there's there's cool things that you can do so you can you can see that and then there's other times like you know they if they pull it off all the time right well then some of the battles they're just going to dominate and that's fine but then when you really want those big challenging fights think about how you can lean into those abilities that you know the players really want to use so i think it's a very powerful thing now on the other side of this i will say players can be nice too right and dms are one brain we're busy we've got a hard job right and players can be nice too and i'll give you an example and that's like paladins don't have to smite on every attack right like maybe just limit yourself to one smite per round instead of like alpha striking the boss just to do it right same with like monk's stunning strike there are certain abilities where you're like i'm pretty sure they they forgot a word or they forgot a phrase and they probably forgot once per turn when they did monk's stunning strike and the idea that monks can stun multiple times a turn by blowing key points particularly against legendary foes. That's a really, really hard ability. So maybe if you're playing a monk, be nice and only stun once per turn, right? Don't, 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 you don't have to optimally fire off your character every time, particularly if you're thinking like, wow, this is going to be a great way to short circuit this fight. Do you really want to short circuit it? You know, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I remember my friend Teos, who I'll be talking about, Teos Abadia, Alpha Stream, had a great story about, I think it was probably in the third edition days. And he, he was sitting down at a table with a group where they had, it was an Adventures League group. And he sat down at a table where everybody else kind of knew each other, except him. And I'm, 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 I'm probably embellishing this story a little bit, but I think it's, I think that the main thing is here. And he, he said that they, the players all sat down and they were playing through the adventure. It was like a mid-level adventure, relative, you know, mid, mid to high-ish. And the players are all just looking at their character sheets and the DM is describing what's going on and they're not really paying attention. And then a battle happens and they say like, okay, this, this monster comes out or these two monsters come out. And all the players jump into this routine that they had. Where it's like, okay, so-and-so is going to cast uh, solid fog on them. And then this other one is going to cast this spell that will in incapacitate this one. This one, th this one's going to cast this spell that boosts up this character and makes them real hard. They're going to walk in. Their AC is 96, so they're never going to be hit. And they're going to attack five times because they have this other spell on. And they're going to be able to do all this other damage on it. And so we're going to wipe it out. And they would go through and they did that and they wiped it all out. And the DM is like, all right, right. And, you know, I guess, right. DM's trying to figure out, like, is all this legal? And then they have all this talk. And then they go into the next battle and they do the same thing again, right? They had this perfect routine of the four characters. And then they get to the boss and Teos said something like, hey, you know, for this last fight, what if we just try to fight them like normal? And the group looks at him like, what are you crazy? Like, we know we have this strategy that completely circumvents the fight. That's what, we, what we're going to do, right? And, and I remember, it's, you know, it's like you can min-max, right? There's lots of min-maxing in every version of D&D. &D. There's lots of things you can do. But remember that the DM has feelings too, right? It's different like when you're playing a video game and you find a, you find a cheat, the game doesn't care, right? They can't, if you figure out a way to get around a character, if you're fighting the giant spider in Demon Souls and you hug the wall and you just shoot your arrow off to the side so you can just barely hit it, but the, the spider can't hit you at all, that spider isn't really mad. 
But DMs, man, they 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 kind of want things to go not exactly a certain way, but a certain feeling. And if you have some combination of abilities that can circumvent anything, maybe think about that. Right? Be, players can be nice too, is my is my point. Really interesting topic. I, I really liked the video, and it really helped articulate the same this, this idea that I've been thinking about about lightning rods. Another piece of information that came out is apparently there was a leaked screenshot this this was this news was broken by nerd immersion who tends to break a lot of news that i've that i've seen and let's see if i've got a yeah and here was a, a screenshot of it apparently during a press event for hasbro showing off their 2022 portfolio of brands which include toys games and everything else it was like everything that hasbro has they showed call from the nether deep the critical role adventure book and they showed this a starter set box labeled starter set with this Dragons of Stormwreck Isle as the name of it. So it looks like there is a new starter set coming out. If we assume that this shot, and we're making some assumptions here, if we assume this shot is what it is coming with, it looks like it's coming with the same kind of stuff that the original starter set had, which was a couple of books, like a, a DM book and a DM book and an adventure book, and then a set of character sheets. The character sheets look blank to me, but it's hard to say. And then it looks like a set of dice. I don't see cards. I don't see a DM screen. I don't see some of the stuff that I saw in the essentials kit that came out with, which, you know, I mean, it is what it is. One of the interesting things is that they priced it when they, I guess when they, I don't know where this came from, but when they priced this stuff out, it was priced at $49.99. I think, and so lots of speculation, lots of like, oh, well, we've hit inflation. And you're like, I don't think we've hit like 300% inflation, right? 50 bucks for a box set sounds like a lot, unless it's like a big beefy box set, like with a lot of stuff going on, right? This does not like character, to, you know, maps and tokens and all kinds of things. Like I could see if you looked at like the old 4E style monster vault, it could be something like that. But I don't, I don't think, I don't think one. Pixelris says another one so soon. I don't, it's been a few years, right? It's been three years. I think the essentials kit has been out for a while. So I don't, I don't think it's that long. And some people are saying, you're guessing it is the three, the 5.5 starter set. I, I would bet against you. I would take that bet. I don't, I think it's going to be pretty standard fare. I don't think they're ready to do any 5.5 yet. It's, it's years away before those new core books. I bet you it's a very similar, I mean, we'll see, right? We'll know when it comes out. But I, I have, I have a couple of thoughts. One is I think it'll be pretty standard affair. I think it's going to be a new adventure, but I think everything else is going to be pretty you know, pretty, pretty nice. Ah, Scipio. So you confirmed the thing I was going to say, which is I bet you that 50 bucks is a misprint, right? I don't think it's 50 bucks. I bet you it's 20 bucks. If I look at what's in here, I bet you it's $20, maybe 25 because of inflation, right? But I bet you it's 20 bucks. And so Scipio here says a D&D &D person, Weninger, Weninger is not a D&D &D person. Weninger is the head of the D&D R&D team. He's the head of the developer, the designers. So if he said that that price quote was wrong and they'll announce the correct price soon, I'm, I'm, I'm betting you are correct. There was a lot of like, well, it's just Watsy trying to gouge people and they did another box set. You know, remember what they did with the box set for Tasha's and Xanathar. Like, this is a different thing, right? This is a different circumstance, different situation. And I expect, you know, could it come with minis? It could. It doesn't look like it does. And I wouldn't bet they are, right? I bet you it's just a start. A new, it looks like it's a new starter set. The question I have is what does that mean for the Fandelver starter set? Like, you know, maybe there's time to go buy yourself an extra copy of starter set i might buy a spare i have extra copies of essentials but i might buy oh scipio's got a tweet look at this breaking news breaking news from our friend scipio friend friend of sly flourish the price is in look at this perfect the price is inaccurate we'll announce them release more information on this product soon there you go i bet you they weren't planning on announcing it and it kind of got slipped in i bet you that you know they want to go yeah, and here's here here start. Let us begin with the conspiracy theories. They want to charge thirty five, so they're using misprint. This is what I do with my wife when I'm like, you know, honey, I really would like some new speakers for our home theater room. Ha check out these fifty thousand dollars speakers that are that are being sold from PS Audio, and she's like, fifty thousand dollars for speakers? What? And then I go, how about these others that are sixteen hundred? You go, oh, that's much more reasonable. And you're like. You know, framing, right? That that's a technique known as framing. You you put numbers in front of people that are really high, so then when you put new numbers in, they are they're they're desensitized to the other set of numbers. For the record, I did not buy sixteen hundred dollars speakers. So I'm living with the speakers that I've had for twenty five years because they're really, really nice. So yeah. If I had to bet, I would bet twenty five dollars. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I bet you they charge twenty five bucks. They could charge twenty. I twenty would be better. And twenty would be great because it wouldn't be 
boosted with inflation, but we'll see. Pixelris says, tw- 30 bucks is a lot for this. Like, you know, man. I mean, the Essentials Kit was 25, right? And the Essentials Kit came with a ton of stuff. So it'll depend on what it comes with too. Anyway, we can speculate all we want or we can just wait, right? It doesn't really matter. But I thought that's pretty cool. I, I, I think the one interesting thing is I might go buy one or two extra copies of the starter set because they might go out of print, right? If this is called the starter set, they're probably not gonna do two, I would bet. So yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go pick. I'm gonna go pick some up. I gotta remind myself. Go pick up. Anyway, that is the new box set. I thought that was cool. So now we have a Kickstarter spotlight. My friends over at Two C Gaming have a new Kickstarter. They just launched for. Oh wait, spoilers. Epic Legacy Tome of Titans two. I talked about last week. This I guess it's like it's like Two C Gaming month here because last time we talked about Dragonflight, the uh, product that they had Kickstarted previously and just put out which is important because it shows that 2C Gaming, and I knew this before, but it's you know good to have more data. They put out really great products for the stuff that they kickstart. So they have a new book coming out called Tome of Titans 2. There is already an existing Tome of Titans 1, which you can pick up. And this really leans in on 2C Gaming's area of expertise in my mind, which is high power monsters, right? We talked about those crazy mythic, what were they like? epic mythic dragons that they did where they're like the stats are way above anything that you would face in in traditional vanilla 5e and this one is very similar so it is a book of big ass monsters i'm pretty sure when you get the hardcover version it does not include like a liquid crystal front display that shows cool things up but that is a pretty neat that's some pretty neat graphics there. Lots of different monsters that you can have for standard and epic level play. So it leans in also on their epic legacy system, the idea of doing D&D above 20th level and how you do that. So you can play beyond 20th level. And this is more you know, more monsters to help in that area. But also they can be used just as high level monsters for your, for your traditional 5e. And uh, tactics, everybody's, you know, a big complaint about 5e is that the monster stat blocks don't include tactics. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. Interesting lore and traits and everything like this. There's some promos. You can download some promos. We're going to look at one of these. And uh, very, you know, really neat. With a former funding, let's see, from one of subsequent funding, a Titan magazine, we have collected volume two Titans available for your perusal. Click through the links to download the promos as they become available. So uh, and to show the full t- table of contents, lots of big things. If you've seen the Tome of Titans one, it's really, really cool. And this is the kind of book where like, it's not likely you're going to run a lot of these. And I mean, I don't know, but like we know that not a lot of people are playing high level D&D. That doesn't mean books like this aren't enjoyable, right? I enjoy looking at high power monsters. I just like reading them. I don't have to run them all the time to really just enjoy reading them. So that's one where like I, I dig this. And also there's opportunities for like one shots. Like 2C Gaming at conventions runs like 20th level one shots, right? Where you have like one great big battle. Epic Legacy can advance to 20. So if, you, if you're not familiar with their work and you want to get involved, this is a great, Kickstarters like this are a great way to get into the back catalog of the, of the creator too. So really, really cool stuff. 25 bucks for the, PD, for the PDF plus all stretch goals that are tied to the PDF. Print and PDF is 55 bucks. That's a pretty reasonable price. So good, good, you know, good, cool stuff. But let's look at an example, one of their monsters. I do have a complaint. I'm going to, I'm going to form a a formal complaint. I am a sucker. I I have certain monsters that I really dig, right? I love vampires. I love liches. Those are two. Balor. Whenever I look at a system, I always go to the Balor because it's like, I know what a Balor is like and I want to see how they do Balors. But Balors, liches, vampires, I do those. Crazy sentient evil moons. I love crazy evil sentient moons they're just cool and so they have one here the doom from beyond the stars null thum right doom from beyond the stars very cool so i i I click here's my complaint when you when you're gonna offer samples like this and i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna ask ryan about this um don't make me log into your system don't make me buy a zero dollar product don't make me log in just give me the product right just put it there i went through the trouble of logging in and setting it up i don't remember my account i don't remember my password i ended up having to go through paypal and i had to go through the entire sales system through paypal to pay zero dollars for a promo thing it took like four or five minutes and i'm a busy guy right so i went through all that trouble so that you don't have to although i'm gonna ask that I, I'll, I'll tell ryan i'm like hey ryan you really probably want to just directly link this put them on a server somewhere and just link to them like don't 
you know, I get it. You want to like collect information. We all do, right? All of us, all of us that are involved in this, in this thing want to collect information. But when you're doing a promo for Kickstarter, just link directly to the thing. Thumod, gargantuan undead, undead. That means you can cast turn undead and it goes, the moon goes flying off in the distance, right? Probably not. I bet you it's immune to turn or something like that. I wonder if it's immune to turn. I mean, it's got, does it have legendary resistance? Myth, it has mythic resistances. If it fails, it can expend an unspent legendary action. One is, so this is this is a 2C Gaming's approach for handling legendary resistance because there's always complaints about legendary resistance. And the problem is like, I don't like the idea of eating into their action economy to do to do this because they still get them back, which means they could do it infinitely. And as a DM, it means you're gonna just hold back one of the legendary actions right before its turn because you're going to get them right back again i'm i don't know it's fine and that's you know it, it it's simple it's straightforward this one also doesn't let them like get out of abilities or, or it doesn't it doesn't let them bust out of the things that they might not otherwise think but at the gargantuan undead moon you're not going to throw a force cage on that sucker cr25 right 1250 hit points that is a lot of hit points. And it's CR this is like a real CR25. This is like, if you go look at the original books on like what a CR25 monster is supposed to be like, they say like, it is going to be really hard for level 20 characters. This guy's going to be really hard for level 20 characters because 1,250 hit points is a lot to get through. AC is reasonable. This one shows like the thing about AC, which I don't think a lot of people get. Armor class does not scale with level. Armor class is a, is a distinct feature of a monster that could be low or high depending on the story of the monster that has nothing to do with challenge rating so if you're thinking about ac and if you're doing any kind of like math don't don't assume ac travels up because like ac 17 i mean you can get that at level one as a player right and you can face monsters that have that at like level at, at cr1 right so ac does not go up but hit points certainly do like yeah, 1250 hit points uh, gaze of torment, 500 foot long, 25 foot wide gaze, affected creatures in it. It basically casts Bane. It, it puts Bane on everybody, right? So like you're, you're hating life. That's a lot of extra dice. Super heavy, made of dense matter. Weighing 10 million pounds, cannot be pushed, forcibly moved against as well, cannot be made. It's a 10 million pound. Does that have, does 10 million pounds have its own gravity at that point? Maw. Here's where you get into your CR25. Plus 17 to hit. Reach five feet. So it's got to be right next to you. Grappled by one creature grappled by it. Hit. The target is half the size of the thuma, of the of the thumoid or smaller. I.e., if you're not a moon yourself, you get devoured. I presume devour means you're dead. Otherwise, it takes 219 piercing damage. Nice. Non-magical though, right? So like barbarians can resist it. They're like, I only take 108. Right, creature devoured by the thumoid is suspended in necrotic fight. Here's where he devoured and has total cover from everything inside. Start of each of the turn, a creature that is devoured has a hit point maximum reduced by 50. Reduces your hit point maximum by 50. No saving throw. This reduction lasts until the effect your creature finishes a long rest. The creature that has its hit point maximum reduced to zero is consumed utterly and cannot be returned to life until the thumoid is slain. The inside of the thumoid is far larger than its dimensions, allowing it to have a number of creatures devoured in this manner. As an action, if it's a turn, a devoured creature can attempt an escape by attempting a DC 18 charisma ability check. No associated skill. Magically appearing in an occupant. So you just kind of will yourself out of this thing. Really cool. Tongue. That's, you know, that sounds dirty. Plus 17 to hit. 44 acid damage. And the Thumoid may force the target to make a DC 25 strength throw. Failed. Grappled and pulled 60 feet in a straight line. If the creature ends its movement within 5 feet, the Thumoid may make a single maw attack against it. Okay, so it doesn't have multi-attack. Instead, it goes, bleh. it's like a big frog, right? This sentient moon is like a giant frog and you're the fly, right? Very cool. Deadlight, thermite shines with a deadly light uh, emitting dim moonlight in one mile radius sphere, blah, 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 blah. Creature illuminated this light cannot sense or perceive creatures other than the thumoid. So you can't see anything other than it. All other creatures are hidden. Nor can they be affect, affect creatures other than the thumoid with attack spells or other. That's interesting. So you like, you have to fight it. It could have minions that are attacking you and you have to fight it. Deadly Sight affects creatures, deathly gaze. Target must succeed in DC 25 con saving throw or take 110 points of necrotic damage or half as much on the success. Spell or magical effect currently affecting the target immediately ends. Spell, oh wow, so it can like turn things off. Uh, target must succeed in DC 25 saving throw or be permanently cursed, permanently. When the creature is so cursed and takes an action, bonus action, reaction, 
or reaction. It takes 14 psychic damage on any of those. So if you take your action, bonus action, and reaction, you take, what, 30-something, 28, 32, 42, 42 points of psychic damage. Woo! I suppose remove curse can get rid of it, but still. Legendary actions. Float. It flies its flying speed. Uh, which is only 40. That's pretty slow for a moon. Gaze. Thermoid activates, deactivates, changes the orientation of its gaze. So it's, it's moving that gaze around, right? That deadly sight, I assume. Oh, no, this. Where's the gaze? The gaze of torment. Deadly sight is two actions. Uses deadly sight action. Pretty cool. It can do a big beam, right? Thermoid affects creatures. It can see. So this it's everybody. Everybody that it can see takes this, right? Whoa. That is brutal. And it can use its maw as a three-action thing. So it could... I don't know why you would do a maw because you, your maw is part of a tongue attack. Uh, deadly Sight. So really... and But one thing I dig about this is like this is about as hard a monster as you can imagine running, right? And the stat block is pretty reasonable. I think I could run this, right? I think I could run this and not completely screw it up. So I really dig it. Anyway, you want a book of monsters like like the Thumoid, like, a, like giant evil frog moons? 2C Gaming has you covered with the epic epic legacy tome of titans 2 check it out they're great people awesome books they are doing hard high level they're doing the they're doing god the god's work right they are <laughs> they are making really high powerful really powerful high cr monsters i trust them more than i trust watsi to be able to make really good high power cr monsters so check their stuff out it's great now let's talk about a product you can buy today this one showed up so this is i think it's still the number one product on the dms guild so this is one of those products that like probably doesn't need my help but i'm doing it anyway called home field advantage home field advantage it's a fantastic book i saw this i bought it so i was i was i was offered a promo copy after i had already purchased it because i was like i want to buy this thing it's 20 bucks i think right i think if you let's take a look how much it costs pretty sure it's 20 dollars. yeah 20 dollar pdf so so I bought this because I was like, ooh, I really like this idea. It is a big book filled with lair actions for almost every monster in the monster manual. Many, I'm going to go with many monsters because I didn't count. I didn't go, I didn't go look. Lots and lots of monsters from the monster manual, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, and Volo's Guide to Monsters. So it is a DMs, this is an example of a DMs Guild product that leaned in to the fact that they're on the DMs Guild. This is something I, if you're a creator, if you're looking at, at making products and you have decided that you wanna put your product out on the DMs Guild, which is, you know, a fine choice to make, make sure you are, you're, when you do that, you're paying 20% of your profits to Wizards of the Coast. If you're paying that 20%, get something for that 20%. And, and they're definitely, the home field advantage is definitely doing that. And that's because they are a, they tapped into a lot of artwork that existed for all of those products. And that artwork was expensive. So that's, you, 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 your 20% is definitely working there. And your, the other one is they're able to talk about monsters that you wouldn't be able to talk about and monsters that you wouldn't be able to like really tie things to if you were using the OGL, if you were using the open gaming license for your product. So in this case, this is a really good example of how to, how to really get a lot of value from what the DMs Guild offers you as a creator. And they really did it. So home field advantage is layer actions. For all kinds of monsters, low level and high level monsters. Oh, thank you so much. I didn't notice that they had done this, but I'm very happy they did, which is clickable, a clickable table of contents. That's something else you can do to be really nice. So let's take a look. Let's do like a small one. We'll do the bandit captain, right? Bandit captain, very straightforward monster, right? Some gangs protect their lairs and territory. They have some a good little description. So what, what is it? This is a book of lair actions, right? If, you, if you're familiar with lair actions that you have that are typically only done for legendary monsters and usually only high-level legendary monsters, this gives it to everybody. Everybody can have a lair action. And it's, I mean, that's such a great thing. And it's, they're real. I try, I've, I've been reading through, I spent a, a good piece of yesterday reading through a bunch of these. And I love them. 
they're really, they're really good. And they do something very interesting that I want to talk about. So, you know, layer actions on initiative count 20, right? Which I think is the same for all. They, they, they follow the same format for legendary actions that, that Watsi does. So it's really good. Bandit captain rallies its gang by insulting its enemies. Each of the bandit captain's allies within the lair gain five temporary hit points and each creature of the bandit captain's choice must succeed in a wisdom saving throw or be frightened of the bandit captain. One thing they mention, which is worth doing, is anytime you're running a monster that, with, that has the lair actions, it's challenge rating is considered one higher than what its base challenge rating is. So in this case, it shows that a bandit captain with the lair actions is challenge rating two. But when you look at things like a DC 12 wisdom saving throw or be frightened, that's pretty powerful, especially against low level characters. Fear is fear is one of those interesting things that's really, really powerful ability in low tier and then becomes non-existent. It, it has no threat at all in higher tier because you almost always have a way to get around it. Bandit captain rolls over a table, swings from a chandelier, specifically places placed rope moving up to its speed. This movement does not provoke. That's great. It does like Errol Flynn cutting down the you know the mast the cutting cutting down the sail of a ship kind of stuff like that's oh that's so great all right bandit captain shouts for its gangs to cripple its enemies they immediately resort to dirty fighting using underhanded tactics groin kicks to the groin throwing sand in their enemies eyes activating booby traps until the initiative count 20 in the next turn the first time an enemy of the bandit captain is hit by an attack from the bandit captain or a member of its gang the creature must make a dc 12 saving throw on a failure it suffers one of the effects it's blinded knocked prone grappled or unable to speak because you got kicked in the nards you know i don't really have anything to say and then another one it looks like they got four right the bandit captain whistles for reinforcements three thugs well i'll tell you that one's powerful because thugs are hard you know, it could be up to five additional thugs. That's going to change your battle. I'd be careful with this last one here. Seven bandits arrive to provide assistance emerging through doors. Really cool. But you can imagine, and it's got regional effects, right? Which, which are kind of cool. A lot of these have regional effects. So that is an example. I mean, that's a low, like you want to have a boss fight against a low power monster, right? This, this is it, right? This is great stuff. Very usable. You can just, you can, you can pull this stuff out and pluck it out. I would probably be careful with the challenge rating of some of these things. I think that they're harder even than the idea that they're one challenge rating higher. Many of them I have seen. Let's take a look at, let's do a mid-range one. What's a good mid-range one? A phase spider. Let's do one of the ones from, let's do like a Shardar Kai. Let's look at the Shardar Kai ones because those are some really, this is again, like nobody's going to be able to do Shardar Kai lair actions unless you're publishing something like on the DMs Guild, right? So different ones. So these are all for the Shardar Kai. It groups them together. So you can kind of use these layer actions for any of the Shardar Kai. I haven't looked at this before, by the way. I looked at a bunch of other ones. I'm picking some new ones. Shardar Kai live in Shadowfell, location Stephen Melancholy imbued with the Raven Queen's magic. Ooh, grim. They have lots of tattoos and piercings. On initiative town 20, Shadow Kai take the lair actions. Call upon the power of the Mistress of Death to seal the fates of its enemies. Once during the next round of combat, the Shadow Kai can force a creature to re-roll an attack roll ability check or saving throw. Let's see, Shadow Kai. Once during the next round of combat. Yeah, Shadow Kai chooses which of the two results to use. Excellent. So it's like bad luck. Gloom, the lair of the Shadow Kai. Shadow Kai creates a 10-foot radius sphere of magical darkness centered on a point which lasts until the Shadokai dies or uses another layer action. A creature with dark vision can't see through this darkness and non-magical light can't illuminate it, but the Shadokai can see through it. That's really nasty, right? Shadokai pulls on the umbral forces of the lair. The next time the Shadokai hits a creature with an attack, the creature must succeed DC 14 con saving or charisma saving throw. Or the Shadokai rips away its shadow, animating it as a shadow under the Shadokai's control. It pulls your shadow and makes you fight it. Shadow persists until destroyed or until the Shotokai uses lair action again, which means it might only last a round. That, that's kind of nice because you're not handling a lot of things. Creature does not cast a shadow until dawn. Remove curse or greater restoration spell. Uh, cast on the creature destroys the shadow instantly and returns the creature's shadow to normal. Very cool. And then it looks like it's got some specific ones for each of the different kinds of shadows. So uh, really, really, re really neat stuff. Oh, yeah. Cultists. Let's look at cultists. What's a cult fanatic layer action i actually looked at this one this one was one let's see we've got to look at our cult fan cult fanatics dwell in hidden shrines defiled temples to dark gods in the ground that's why i love them so much layers are redolent with incense incense and the blood of sacrifices one can always hear just beyond the next passage of chanting of worship and darker things dark altar one object in the fanatics layer is designated as its dark altar a relic defined by the vile energies of the entity of the fanatic worships while near the dark dark altar some of the cult fanatics uh, abilities function differently 
on initiative count 20, yada, 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 can't use a fang sex. If the, if the cult fanatic can touch the dark altar and it can see 10 or more allied creatures, it may deal 17 necrotic damage to itself and all allied creatures within 60 feet to summon one aberration, fiend, or undead with a challenge rating of three or less. It can sacrifice themselves to pull in a fiend. Very, very cool. The creature is not controlled by the fanatic. So once it gets free, if the fanatic survives that, it might just turn around and murder the fanatic. That's pretty awesome. One creature within the Cult Fanatic's Lair hears dark whispers echoing malign purpose of the place. That creature must make a DC 11 con sa charisma save or become frightened. The creature that fails to save can see the dark altar. It takes three psychic damage and must move immediately to use its reaction if available to move as far away. So like you run. Remember, frightened doesn't mean you run. Frightened is very specific and sometimes frightened means you run. The followers of the dark of the, the fanatic are suffused with dark energy until initiative count 20 in the next round. Cultists, aberrations, fiends, or undead that can see the cult fanatic gain advantage on attack rolls, but attack rolls against them have advantage. If an affected creature dies within 20 feet of the dark altar, the cult fanatic gains seven temporary hit points. Very, very cool. Twice per day, cult fanatic calls forth followers. Up to 1d4 cultists emerge from hiding occupied, so you can bring in more. If this ability is used within 20 feet of dark altar, it instead magically summons 1d6 crawling claws, lemurs, manes, or tad slod tadpoles. Very cool. I love it. This book is packed with this kind of stuff. How many pages is it? It's a great big book. 236 pages, right? Great big book. I wish it was in print, right? Really good. And the art is great. I mean, the art, a lot of the art, I think, was taken from previous previous books that Watsi had put out, but it really works well. It's just, it's it's really excellent, right? I love this book. I think it's fantastic. It is currently the number one bestseller in the DMs Guild, and with good reason. It is. It really hit a niche that didn't exist, and I would certainly use this. As a lazy DM, I think it's fantastic because if I want to run a boss fight, I can just run and grab this. I don't have to come up with my own crazy-ass mechanics for running a boss fight. What, what's interesting is this is also sort of the way to do Matt Colville-style action-oriented monsters. A lot of the things you see here are sort of Colvillian action-oriented monster type things. He's, they're, they're called layer actions, and it works that way. They are they still fit that same model, right? That you get to do things that that change up the environment. So if you are looking for the like Colville style action-oriented monsters, you you have them here. The other interesting thing is that this book works really well because there are now new versions of a lot of these monsters coming out, and yet they are not. These are not going to be out of date because they're not directly tied to the abilities of that monster, typically, not that I've seen. So it means that this book is going to survive the change of Volos and Mordenkainen monsters. So great stuff. And uh, look, new vampires, right? New vampire lair, lair actions. I love me. I love me some vampires. So it is called Home Field Advantage. And you can find a link uh, to this book in the show notes below. 20 bucks, definitely worth it. A really, 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 really great tool. I just It always excites me to see stuff like this. So that's fantastic. My friend, Teos Abadia, AlphaStream, uh, wrote a really, he wrote two articles recently, two really interesting articles that continue a series of things that he's been talking, series of articles that he's been talking about for spellcasting monsters. Look, I, I misspelled it. Montessors. There we go. Monsters. The first of these was the future we want for spellcasting monsters. I immediately hit him up on Discord and said, when you say we, who do you mean? Are you trying to tell me what to think? Are you? Don't tell me what to think. I will decide if it's the future I want. It's the future you want for monsters. And maybe it's the future I want, but I haven't even read your article yet. You're already telling me how to feel about it. So... He gives the disclaimer that we all love 5e. We all, love, you know, that we, we respect the designers of 5e and that's all great. And really it comes down to, really it comes down to how, how Wizards of the Coast has been changing, particularly spell casting monsters. And we're seeing the results of that in Mordenkainen and Tome of Foes. We're seeing it in, or not Mordenkainen, uh, the Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse, which we've been talking a lot about on this show. But you can also see it in books like Wild Beyond the Witchlight, and I think in a, a little bit in Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, or not Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, uh, what is it, the other one? The, the, the one with the Frostmaiden, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I think they did a little bit in there too. And I don't know that all of us are happy with how this is going out. I'm not, you know, I'm not happy, but I don't know what I want, right? When he says the, the future we want, 
I don't know. I don't know what future I want. Right. I know, I know there's a few things I know. So anyway, he, he has a really good article and he, he talks about, and he brings up really good examples like the Hobgoblin Devastator who we had in, I think it was in Volo's Guide. And now we have a new version. And he, and he talks about like, you know, he talks, I like this one. He brings this point up that the action is the quarterstaff plus three to hit four bludgeoning damage or five. Like that's three lines of text for something you should never do, right? You should never have a hobgoblin devastator who's a challenge rating four monster right poke somebody with their staff right instead all of the challenge rating is piled into the stat block and it's like that's a lot of stuff right it's a lot of things to know about and slots and you know things like that arcane advantage is pretty cool right and then they have a new one and he shows the new one. The first thing he says, it can make two quarterstaff attacks and the quarterstaff is four bludgeoning plus, or five plus 13 force damage. So now at least if you're hitting with the staff, it still sucks. It's still plus three. But if you hit with the staff, you're still doing like, what is that? Nine, 17 points of damage per hit, two of those. That's a reasonable amount of damage, right? And they got rid of most of the spells and instead replaced it with this devastating bolt and it can do two of these attacks, right? Plus five to hit 21 force damage, right? So way easier to run. And I think uh, Teos makes the point that like it hits above its challenge rating because as we know, one of the things about Wizards of the Coast monster design is hit really hard in low challenge ratings and, and hit really lightly in high challenge ratings. I don't know why that is the way it is, but it feels like, feels like it's the way it is. I know you can argue with me. So really, really hits hard, right? And then it, he brings up this, a very good point, which was when they talked about the design, when you heard Jeremy Crawford talk about the design of monsters, one of the ideas behind it was that we're going to take, it's not we're going to get rid of spells for monsters. We're just going to refer to them differently. And we're going to put spells that aren't really part of the challenge rating of the monster in the stat block. In, in, when we list out spells, we're not expecting that a DM is using those spells. We're expecting they're using their actions, right? And we will put things in the actions that they use. So you would think like it's mostly utility-based spells. It's kind of the spells that monsters might use when they're not necessarily in combat or if they're in combat in a weird situation that is, makes it kind of impossible for them to use their standard approach. Then why is Fireball and Lightning Bolt in there, right? Like these other ones make sense. Mage Hand, Prestidigitation, Fly, Fog Cloud, Gust of Wind. I get those right? Those are kind of utility-ish sort of spells. But Fireball and Lightning Bolt, like why put those in there if you have Devastating Bolts, right? Like I think you're still better off with Fireball twice a day than you would be with Devastating Bolts. You're gonna, you can hit more targets and stuff like that. It's weird. Like why did they decide to put some monster, some spells in here and others when it's like, why, why, why? And now I still got to go. I, I don't because I know what Fireball does. But like, you know, other people are gonna have to look at, oh, well, Fireball, right? And is, is the Fireball part of the challenge rating or not? Right? I don't know. Because like a fireball is going to do more damage, certainly, than a pair of devastating bolts is going to do. Right? Like 21 force damage for two targets is not even close to 28 damage to multiple targets that you get with a fireball. I don't get it. He talks about the blue and green Abishai, right? And I think this is the blue, right? As crazy, look at all the spells that blue Abishai has, right? Ton. Like, who, I don't have that. I don't have a kind of time to read all that. Well, I'm going to go like, oh, I guess chain lightning looks good. I guess I'll go with that. And again, then it's got these like crappy quarterstaff attacks, right? Oh, it can, ah, the bite's not so bad. One with its quarterstaff. It's going to like bite you for 27 points of damage. And then it's going to go bonk, right? For five. So they change that they change that up, right? And now it does it still has the bite. It doesn't have, you know, no more staff bonking. It can do three bite attacks, which are pretty bad, right? These are 27 damage three times. But I think the challenge rating in this thing is pretty high, right? What's the challenge rating? CR 17. So blue Abishai are high challenge rating monsters. They should be doing tons of damage. Right? So 27 times three for a bite attack. That's pretty good. A lightning strike, which it can do three times. 12 plus 12 to hit. That's a lot for 36 damage. So it has like chain lightning wired in. That I don't know. I don't know the math. Somebody somebody tell me seven times. What is it? 17? 119 points of damage is on the, you know, uh, right? So it's a little, a little light. You know, according to my math, which I don't think is perfectly accurate. And, and this one's pretty good where they don't, they, they have other spells in here. And I think Teos argued that some of these spells are still combat tactical spells, but I'd argue they're not likely going to use them all the time. Wall of Force, Greater Invisibility, Charm Person, Dispel Magic. They might use those, but they might not. So I, I think this one looks pretty strong, right? 
And so Tails goes into more stuff. Really good. Stuff. He talks about the drow matron mother, which I think I talked about too, with its crazy anemic tentacle rod, the three, the three damage tentacle rod at challenge rating, whatever. It's really high challenge rating. And talks about how it shrunk it down, right? Yeah, CR 20, right? And he brings it up. These are pathetic, giving this challenge rating 20, which should deal 123 to 140 damage around. Wasn't this revision supposed to remove trap choices and bad damage? He's saying that like that demon staff is a is a, or the identical rod is a trap, right? Like if you're using that, you're probably gonna fail. Like it's gonna be very very weak. So so he has a really good thing. I don't you know one thing I another complaint about his article, and I love Teos to death, right? We talk all the time. I don't think he actually says what the spellcasting thing is that he wants, right? We, the future we want. I don't remember the future being in here. But really interesting take on it. And then he brought out a new one, the future, the, how Watsy already found. So uh, he and myself and Scott Fitzgerald Gray were having a conversation and talked about some of this, talked about some of the things that he had. And he brought up that like, hey, they used to do it differently, right? And that if you look at some of the lower ones, they used to put spell descriptions. And so instead of having like arcane burst, they would actually have spell descriptions like magic missile and ray of frost in it. So like the master of souls, right? Has ray of sickness and chill touch and Scorching Ray inside its stat block already. And why did they decide that that wasn't a great idea? I don't know. Anyway, really fascinating pair of articles. Re- really, really good stuff. And interesting because I don't know what I want. I don't, I, I can't decide. Like part of me, we, I was talking with him about it yesterday. And I was thinking like, well, you have sort of the Fory example. Let's, 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 uh, let's do a thing for the past here. I actually went, thanks to the patrons of Sly Flourish, and bought uh, a digital copy of the Monster Vault, the fourth edition Monster Vault, which I consider to be the best monster book for fourth edition. If you're going to play fourth edition D&D, I really like this. And who did I want to look at? Lich, of course. You know, always, always be looking at the Lich. Whoops, I skipped ahead. Here we go. Lich Necromancer, right? And an interesting thing is, I'm, I'm stuck between two areas. This is what a fourth edition Lich looks like, you know, and it has things like, like it's an elite. So it counts as like two monsters of its challenge rating, right? That's why it's got a lot of hit points and everything's kind of wrapped up into traits. It's got a necronic or necromatic aura. It talks about the soul phylactery. It has a vampiric touch, freezing claw, enervating ten, ten, tendrils, shadow walk and Lich control, right? And I've run these monsters when I was playing fourth edition and I, I, they, 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 they didn't, you know, like everything, they didn't hit as hard as I had hoped. And they were easily kind of pinned down by characters who had lots of control. Like every, every character in fourth edition was a controller. They could all control the battlefield. Everybody fighters, every, every, every class had, was, was, you know, had lots of kickers that they could do to control monsters. So I always got stuck with that. But one thing that didn't happen is like when I ran a Lich Necromancer, I didn't screw it up. I ran it like it was supposed to run because it wasn't hard to run it. But in the end, I looked at it and I was like, this doesn't feel like a Lich. Like there's nothing about the thousand year effort that the Lich has spent studying arcane magic. And the end result of that is enervating tendrils. This feels like a flame skull to me, right? This feels like a fancy flame skull. And I'm not picking on 4E. Like it's, that's the, that's kind of the style. And again, it was easy to run. I just felt like the stat block didn't represent the monster, right? Not, not the kind of monster that I, that I thought about. And so then the alternative is something like in fifth edition, we have the Lich. Oh, wait, box, right? The stat block is way bigger, right? Way more stuff, way many more words. And almost all of its challenge rating, which is really high, CR 21, is piled in these spells that it's got. And look at all the spells it's got. Tons of them, right? And I and on also some major parts of the Lich's challenge rating are really tied up in its lair actions. If you don't have this, where is the this guy, the negative energy that tether, the tethering ability, right? Critical for a Lich because it's only got 135 hit points. It needs something. I've run Liches in 5e probably a half a dozen times at least, and I've never done it right. I've always screwed it up. I've never found the right combination of abilities. So this Lich stat block better represents a Lich and yet I can't use it, (laughs) right? So I'm stuck between oversimplifying a really complicated monster that I can run it, but it doesn't really represent the monster particularly well. Or 
I have a stat block that represents the monster really well. It has lots of stuff in it, like plane shift and scrying and all of these other abilities, right? But when I run it, I, it's just, it's this, like liches are like one of the hardest monsters in D&D &D to run, right? So much stuff is piled in and there are so many ways to run it poorly, right? So when I think about the future that I want, you know, according to Teos, I, I don't really know. I need to really think about it, but I know I need something between it. I need like a combat lich. I need a stat block that helps me run it in battle. But then I also need a fair bit of description text that reminds me that a lich is way bigger than its monster stat block, right? That a, a lich has all of this other things going on. And it might be something as simple as just saying like, you know, the lich has access to pretty much all wizard spells and can cast them a number of times as though it was a 20th level wizard. That might be enough because then I could just go look that up, right? And I'm not gonna use it in combat, right? Instead, the combat stat block should show me all the, the big things that are really gonna make it devastating in combat. But I should, I need something that tells me it's not a flame skull, right? And that's, that's really the tricky bit. So this, I don't, I don't have a great answer yet, but I'm very interested. And I'm and I'm I'm interested to see. I'm interested to read articles like Tales. I'm interested to. I'm, I'm, I'm when Monsters of the Multiverse comes out. I've seen a lot of it, right, from previews and stuff. But yeah, really interesting topic. And I don't know where they're going to go. And I don't know what five point five is going to look like. We'll have to see. I will tell you this: Wizards has definitely doubled into the concept of simplifying it, and I think that's really important. And I think third party designers have not done a great job with that overall. I think third, generally speaking, third-party publishers of monsters, most of the time when I read them, I'm not gonna pick on anybody in particular. Most of the time when I read them are, they have too many words. They're too complicated. They need to be shrunk down a lot. That's why I like the ogre. Like ogre is a fantastic stat block, right? Because I, I know exactly what an ogre can do. I'm giants, I like the giant stat blocks. Like really say, reminding ourselves that a monster is really only gonna live three rounds. And it, that means it only really gets three actions. Don't give it five, right? Like really ask like, what are the actions this thing's gonna take? And focus on that and make them robust enough that they won't get like pinned in a corner and killed, right? Like give them a ranged, give most monsters a ranged attack so that they won't get pinned down and killed. But it's it's really tough. And I, I, I see a lot of third-party publishers who are like, I don't like the tactics. I don't like the way Wizards did it. And I don't think they're tactical enough or crunchy enough. And they pour in tactics. And now we get stat blocks that are multi-page stat blocks. If you go more than one page in a stat block, you're in trouble. Let's do a couple of Patreon questions. We, we burned much of the show talking about all kinds of other stuff, but we'll do a couple of Patreon questions today. Lawrence H. says, how might you use the GM intrusion from Numenera in a 5e game? If at all, I find the mechanic intriguing, but it doesn't really fit the 5e ethos. I kind of, I, I might disagree with that last statement. What is a GM intrusion? In the game, in the Cypher system, which is the underlying role-playing mechanic, the, the underlying RPG that is in Numenera, they have a concept, the, the, the GM does not roll dice in the Cypher system. The DM just sets challenge ratings. The GM pretty much mechanically does two things, sets challenge ratings and does GM intrusions. That's pretty much what a DM, what a GM does. The GM intrusion is essentially you've compli you complicate the situation. You make things harder in the situation. And, and in payment for that, you offer up experience points to the player whose life got harder because of the intrusion, right? And the player gets two of them and takes one of them and hands them to another player and drags that person in. The player can also say, no, I don't want it. And that removes the intrusion. So it's kind of a what if. Right. I was thinking about it today. I was talking about it with my wife and I was like, it's sort of like a, what, like, what if this happened? And then you dangle a couple of experience points, right? Like that could be a way to do it. The obvious way to bring that into D and D is with inspiration, right? We can use inspiration is actually a pretty poorly described mechanic in 5e and yet it's still a nice one. It's still pretty powerful and we can do a lot with it. And one of the things we can do is, is exactly this. The world gets more complicated. The situation gets harder, but you get inspiration, right? And you can make like harder for a character, but also give them inspiration at the same time. Now, the tricky bit is that you generally only have one inspiration. So if they already have one, you're not really helping them, right? That could be a problem. I, I really like to use inspiration in 5e to, for 
players who are willing to put their characters in risk. So the one who's going to be first through the door into the unknown and a player who's willing to take that thing to move the story forward, I often give inspiration for that. But the other thing is I'm a lazy DM and a lot of times I just start and say everybody starts with inspiration. Make sure to spend it before the end of the session so I don't have to worry, really worry about it. But the other thing is you can use inspiration in a similar way to the GM intrusion in that you can you can award it for making the life, for making the story more challenging. You can also accept inspiration in return to make the world a little easier instead of as a reroll, right? You can say, if you're willing to give me your inspiration, this other thing might occur. Like you might find a ledge up high that's going to be a better vantage point for shooting with range attacks. I'm making that up, right? But you know, if you award inspiration, the world changes, right? So there's some options there. Another one is I think, I don't know if it's in the DMG. Someone can remind me if this is in the DMG. But I know that the, what's it called? The Oracle of War Adventures for Eberron that came out on the DMs Guild, they had an idea of hero points, which is essentially you could be awarded one or more hero points, which were D6s. And it was treated very much, I believe, like Bardic Inspiration. You could, you could add a D6 roll to any attack roll or skill check or anything like that. And you could collect them up and you earned them. You could do the same thing. You could, you could essentially hand D6s to people and say, I'll, I'll give you this hero point because this situation went bad. And you could give two and say, who do you want to drag in? And they give one to somebody else. You could certainly do something like that. So there's a few ways that I think it could fit in. To me, the idea of inspiration is around where you might consider doing the GM intrusion. The other thing is you could just do it, right? Don't don't offer anything, but sometimes the world gets harder. I don't, I don't think that's a terrible... If it's for the fun of the game, it makes it interesting. I think it's worth doing. JCC says, I'm preparing a Roman Colosseum style campaign to run at my LGS. I wanted the table to feel open to new players, but I, but I know there are seasons players planning on joining my game how would you recommend i ensure that there is always room for a new player each week that's tough one way i think you might be able to do it is essentially say you can sign up for five there, we have five seats that are open you can sign up ahead of time right and and kind of make them sign up every week and then there's always a six slot that is open and you don't let anybody sign up for it and drop-ins can use that slot and maybe the drop-in is a new player maybe they're not the problem is if people become aware that you're doing it they're going to just seek that drop-in slot anyway and you're going to end up with a six player who's also experienced it's hard to separate out your new players from your seasoned players another way is if you specifically want to run a campaign for newer players set up a campaign like that and ask people if they want to join in and make it clear like you're going to talk to them and interview them, right? I think it's when you're doing a group, I think interviewing players is a fine way to build a really good group. And one of the things you can interview for is are you new to D&D or are you a veteran? And if you're a veteran, well, we have other veteran games that you can sign up for, but this one's really for new people. And that way you're instead of kind of making it open for anybody to join, which is fine, right? But you're just not necessarily going to get you're not necessarily going to get new people if you do that. This way, you're actually designing an, an adventure for new people. So I mean, getting groups together and, and getting them to work well is the hardest part of D&D. So you're hitting that same problem. There's not an ideal. I don't think there's an ideal way to do it. But those are two options. Keep a seat open that no one can sign up. You know, Let people sign up for it except for keep one slot open. And the other one is to do signups and go interview and look for new players. Nicholas F., I ran my friends through Curse of Strahd and they loved it, but they didn't like they didn't like that it stopped when they were level 11. I'm running Wild Beyond the Witchlight next, but that only goes up to level 8. I'm considering leveling them up twice as often, but bumping the difficulty to match. Other than just using the monster dials, adding more monsters and increasing DCs, are there good ways to increase difficulty that are still fun? Or is this all just a colossally bad idea? There, there's room between doing this and it being a colossally bad idea that I will offer up. One of the things that we often forget about is that levels have a meaning in the world, right? We Levels are not just power. They're not just character power. They The level means something and the tiers mean something. The kinds of adventures you do in tier one and tier two and tier three are very different from one another. If you level a lot faster, the kinds of challenges and the kinds of quests that you're going to put in front of the characters in Wild Beyond the Witchlight are going to seem too mundane for the players. That's not the kind of problem they solve. Witchlight is really a tier one, early tier two game. If you're tier two, when the game is expecting you to be tier one, the players are going to have not just a lot more tools at their disposal to deal with the problems that they would normally face, which are not just combat, right? It's not just the difficulty of foes. It's 
they're also going to have tools that should make it a lot easier for them to bypass the problems that tier one characters would be facing. So do I think it's a colossally bad idea? No. Do I think it's a good idea? Probably not. If they liked being level 11, another consideration is taking, you know, doubling down on the concept of the domains of dread and digging into Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, my favorite D&D book of last year, certainly favorite first party D&D book of last year. And using, letting them explore other domains of dread that, that have sort of a cascading or a, a growing threat, right? And that way you could go to 20 because there's, there's probably domains of dread. Many of the domains of dread are, are not intended to be these super high power things, but some of them are. You fight our archmages and stuff like that. And you could certainly scale those up and go, go a different route, right? Pick a different story. But the main thing I would keep in mind, the main thing I would mention is that just recall that the kinds of adventures that characters should be going on change depending on what level they are. And it's more than just turning the dials. It's it's definitely not just like making the monsters harder. Like you can do a a high level Feywild adventure. I just don't think it's wildly on the witch light, right? I I think it's something bigger than that. I think that the scope and scale is bigger than that. You could probably take a lot of themes from the witch light and sort of dial them up, right? Before, not just not just monster dials and stuff, but like change the theme so that it's a lot harder and a lot higher. But the other one is if they want to really go higher than a level 11, maybe stay with those level 11 characters and, and build some new adventures, right? Chris says, you seem to run a decent amount of published adventures. That is true. Do you ever find it difficult to operate within the confines of the setting? No. For example, I'm going to start running Dragon of Spire Peaks, and I worry that someplace that isn't too far away from the action, such as Neverwinter, might draw the party's attention. The adventure, as you know, comes with next to no information on locations and, and that don't pertain to the quests. I appreciate any advice on not getting overwhelmed with the feeling of needing to know the entire setting inside and out. So yeah, that last sentence is the big one, isn't it? Players, generally speaking, and you can cover this in your session zero, right? Players are going to follow the quests you put in front of them most of the time. If if areas, like you might mention Neverwinter in passing, but unless you have drives and motivations that clearly mean the players want to go to Neverwinter, they're probably not going to go there, right? They're probably going to follow the lines of the quest that you've got. If you focus on locations and quests, if you're running like a West Marches style game where it's like wherever direction they go is wherever the game goes, that might be a little different. But I think generally speaking, you know, the quests that you put in front of them, the jobs that you put in front of them, particularly with Dragon of Ice Bar Peak, like Dragon, I don't think it was ever a risk that players were going to go off the rails with Dragon of Ice Bar Peak because it's such a focused way that it runs. It's a quest board, right? And the quest board has quests and you go pick up the quest and you go do the job. So I, I, I think that's the big one. You just, you, you only have to worry about, it. first of all, you're human. So you don't, if let's say something comes up, oh, Neverwinter, what's the deal with that? Well, it's like, oh, well, let me tell you about the primordial who almost destroyed the city. Like you don't need to know the lore and you could just say, hey, I don't know. Like I'll read about it, right? I'm gonna, I'll go hit the Forgotten Realms wiki and read about Neverwinter. Maybe like if you really want extra credit, you go buy the Neverwinter book that came out for fourth edition because it's got tons of stuff about Neverwinter. So I don't think you have to worry about it that much. And, you know, just like we talk about focusing the adventure on what's in front of you, the players are going to focus on what's in front of them. They're not likely to go like the worry that Neverwinter is going to draw the player's attention. Like where do you, is that really a risk? Like it never even occurred to me that that would be a problem when I was running Dragon Vice Bear Peak because like, it's mentioned a couple of times, maybe. But like, if it's not in front of the players, they're not going to go run off and and grab it. So I I, I think we we generally even in, even in a West Marches style game, we're driving the we, we still talk about what's out there, and we know that the things are out there are the things that they're going to go to maybe, and the things that aren't out there they're not going to go to right. So I I don't think it's something that you need to worry about too much. The idea of not getting overwhelmed is focus on what's in front of you. Think about think about what's in front of the characters. Offer them some options, right? And they're probably going to take one of them. Yeah, I think, I think that's the case. I hope that helps, Chris. Broccoli says, in our in-person game, I run mostly published campaigns and we like having combat with miniatures on a grid. Oh, cool. I like to be prepared when running my game, so I don't really like drawing the maps during the session. Oh, this is a good question. I remember reading this. I only do this for smaller improvised scenes. I haven't figured out how to print the maps that our published campaigns provide at an appropriate size. So I draw what I need during the session prep. I like drawing maps, but it takes up a lot of time and that's not really following the lazy DM approach. Do you have any tips on preparing and using maps for in-person games? 
that is really hard. This is a really tough question. Getting getting good at being able to quickly draw maps can help. Some people, you know, if, like figuring out like the kinds of things you really need to draw when you draw a map is important. By the way, you can get big rolls of gridded paper, like butcher block paper and draw maps on there. Some people love to use like cheap ass wrapping paper because there's usually a grid on the other side of wrapping paper, one inch grid on the other side of wrapping paper. So you can draw maps on those and sort of set them aside. That's that's a way to do it. There are two sources. I'm going to have to whip them up here. There are two sources that I recommend when you're thinking about how to draw maps. One of them is Dyson Logos. Dyson Logos is, of course, our friend Dyson. One of the things that Dyson has somewhere, is it under his maps? Is he has this key, right? And this key shows what the shapes are for things that you would draw on a map. And you can kind of learn these shapes. They're very simple. They're very straightforward. Learn what they're like and use them. Like an altar is just a square with a couple of dots, right? I have like my tricky, It's I don't think he's got one for this. He's got the circle with a star for a statue. I like to draw two ovals, a small oval and a larger oval that looks like the top of a humanoid statue. That's my little trick. I like to do one oval and then a little circle inside and you've got yourself a humanoid looking statue with two, two motions of a pen. You know, picking up very simple designs like this sloped elevation, right? There's little, little dashes that go up to an area. It's a, it's good to pick up, I think, and learn like how to do double doors, two rectangles, right? Use rectangles for doors is a real good one. You know, I often do like two small squares and then two lines that connect them to show a door. If you come up with these things, you can draw them relatively quick, quickly. You're not going to do all the hashing, right? Like Dyson hashing takes forever or can take forever, but these are really good you know, th this kind of style, what curtains or tapestries look like, this is really good. The other, it's funny that there's not a lot of resources for how to draw maps. Like there's, this is a, this is an untapped area. Help me learn how to draw maps quickly, right? But another one is called Map Foo by Chris Perkins. He wrote this a long time ago. And I think it is, it's, it's like in the Wayback Machine. So Chris Perkins, boy, this article was hard to find. So I'm going to. Definitely, you will find this this link in the show notes. And boy, man, don't kill your articles, wizards. Some of these. So Chris Perkins talks about the kind of style he uses when he is drawing maps. And he shows these little tricks. Like, how do you do rubble? Big, big blocks and little dots, right? Statues, circles with stars inside. You know, pits, these little dodges. And just learning how to draw simple maps. Like, look at this elevation he's got here. This is probably not super fast, right? Minimal furnishings, just show the stuff that really matters. But look at like his careful stuff here, right? Look how he uses blocks, right? His walls are, are double thick. They're not, they're not just one line. He does these like double thick lines, right? So I think it's useful to learn these tricks so that you can draw them. And I think that you can, if you know that you're going to have areas that you can draw ahead of time, drawing them out on paper, right? Cut, cut up, you know, you go get some cheap, Paper, draw it on there. It'll look really nice. You can slide it. Another trick that I have that I that I adore is get a big acrylic sheet for your table. Uh, you can get them at Home Depot. A 24 by 36 is about as big as you want to get. Any bigger than that, like you can get a 36 by 48, but they're really big. But like a 24 by 36, maybe, yeah, maybe a 36 by 48. You get a 36 by 48 too. And... I use blue sticky tack on the bottom to keep it so that when it sits on the table, it won't slide around, right? And you can slide maps underneath it. And it gives us really nice surface that feels great with miniatures. Uh, you can draw on it with a dry erase board. So you can draw effects that won't screw up the map that's underneath. That works That works really, really well. So I like I like that idea a lot. But yeah, it's, it's not easy. Like this is another one of these like tricks where it's just not ideal. Same thing with miniatures, right? Like it's one of the reasons like I'm a big proponent of like theater of the mind is because miniatures, you will go forever. You know, you know, there's no perfect solution to miniatures. And if you start buying miniatures to represent monsters, you will never stop. I can, I can share this. I can share this with experience. So broccoli, really good question. Probably something I want to dive into more. I think that that's a really, a really good topic. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we chatted about all things D&D. &D. It is always a great pleasure to do this show. I adore it. 
Thank you very much for hanging out. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D. &D.